Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Alamo Drafthouse in Richardson and the 10th season of Airtime. We will start off by our fearless executive director, Miss Kitty Goddard. Thank you, and it is so good, thank you. So good to see all of you here tonight. I think you're in for quite a treat. Um, a few housekeeping items to mention first. Uh, Air host Ricochet Arts and Music Festival, and that's going to be Saturday, October the 19th. So that's just a week from this Saturday. Uh, some of the events will be held on the patio here at Alamo, as well as in front of Half Price Books. We will have sidewalk chalk artists, uh, musicians, um, singing groups. There will be a lot going on, so we encourage you to swing by here. Then at the Richardson Public Library, it, at the same time from noon until five. We will have musicians, we will have events for kids uh, where they can color their own kites and then fly them by the fountain there, as well as um, the Chin Wu Lion Dancers, which are always a big hit. They're at two o'clock, so we encourage you to stop by the Richardson Public Library. And then also at the same time from 12 to five, we have events happening at, yes, Four Bullets Brewery. Who can miss the brewery? Anyway, in there we have the greatest art exhibit called Creativity on Tap. All of the entries have something to do with beer. It can be anything. So some of them are photographs of water in hops, while others are pictures of empty, well-used glasses. Anyway, we will also have musicians there and uh, encourage you to stop by, have a pint, and enjoy the art. In the evening, we will culminate the day, and there you should have all received one of these, with the first in the series of Texas music concerts in partnership with Six Springs Tavern. And we are so excited that for this initial concert, we have the wonderful Terry Hendricks with Lloyd Maines. They are award-winning and fabulous and Texas musicians that people around uh, this whole North Texas area just love. And we will also have the Guy Forsyth Band, who is equally uh, liked and has quite a following. And they are more of a blues eclectic type band. They, they um, excuse me, they start at 10 p.m. Terry and Lloyd are 8 to 10. And then starting off the evening, we have three Texas, young Texas musicians who will be performing. So uh, tickets are $16 in advance, $20 at the door. This little card has all you need about those wonderful concerts. So with that, I would like just a quick show of hands of who in the audience tonight has participated in the FBI Citizens Academy. And I know some others were here earlier, but they had a conflict and had, <laughs> well, you went to the real one. We went to the, the pretend one, but it was still a great experience, at least well, I thought it was. I thought it was. Anyway, um, having had that experience, and as a side note, my dad was in the FBI for his war service in World War II. So I've always had a special affinity for the organization. And after doing the Citizens Academy, an even greater respect for them and what they do. So we are so delighted that we could have the assistant special agent in charge of the Dallas field office be with us this evening, Michael Costanzi. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to season 10 of Airtime, presented by AIR, the Arts Incubator of Richardson in partnership with Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Richardson, Texas. 
Airtime is an interview series featuring artists and creative thinkers in Richardson and the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Airtime is funded in part through the generosity of Eric and Deanna Wise of Wealthstar Advisors and through a grant from the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission. It's October 8th, 2019, and as Kitty just said, please help me welcome our guest this evening, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the Dallas FBI Office, Mr. Michael Costanzi. Thank you, thank you. Michael, you are uh, originally from the East Coast. You're not from around here. Um, tell us about your upbringing and uh, what led you to a career in law enforcement. Okay, well, first off, thanks everybody for coming out this evening. I greatly appreciate the support. Um, so yes, I am from uh, the East Coast. I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania, the uh, Poconos, if anybody's ever heard of that. Uh, I was born and raised in Scranton uh, in a, your typical traditional large Italian Catholic family. Uh, both sides of my family, thank you. Uh, I went to the uh, University of Scranton, which is a Jesuit school in uh, in Pennsylvania and for undergrad, and I got my master's degree from Webster University through St. Louis. Um, after uh, I graduated uh, from the University of Scranton, I uh, was in Air Force ROTC when I was in college, so I went in the Air Force right away. I spent just shy of nine years in the Air Force before I joined the FBI. In college, you majored in criminal justice? I majored in criminal justice. What That's was correct. it that drew you to that instead of biology or math or engineering or well um i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you if, if you really want to know why i joined law enforcement so when i was in the air force i was an air force uh, security police officer um and then i when I, uh, before i joined the fbi so i have to say so i'll, I'll see if, uh, if i date myself too much but i started to get inspired about law enforcement through sonny crockett and rico tubbs and a little bit of uh, thomas magnum and quite frankly, I, I thought about, I wanted to wear a suit, carry a gun and badge, and put uh, bad guys in jail. So that's kind of where the inspiration was. <laughs> Did you play a lot of cops and robbers as a kid, or were you a detective person? Or? No, I actually played, uh, I played Army growing up uh, because I wanted to be the next George Patton. But instead, I joined the Air Force, and uh, it was a little bit different turn, but <laughs> I'm not uh, regretting it. So do you think there are law enforcement folks who are more frontline and some that are more problem-solving leader strategy? Well, that's, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll tell you, um, first off, other than the Citizens Academy folks here, how many folks have actually ever met an FBI agent? Well, that's good. Uh, or is it good? <laughs> you know, so, but there, you know, I, I had mentioned this before in the Citizens Academy. You can go your whole life without ever meeting an FBI agent, and you kind of get that stereotypical profile from television. And what you'll find in the Citizens Academy, and hopefully this evening, is that we're a lot different than what is portrayed on television. And um, so, yes, there are critical thinkers, and there are. It all depends on your background. So I will tell you that. What makes the FBI great is its diversity. It's diversity of the folks that we have and their backgrounds. Because we investigate everything from art theft to bank robbery to foreign counterintelligence, spies, and terrorism. So we need to recruit and retain a very talented, broad-based background group of agents and analysts in order to solve the crimes we solve. So I would say that almost all of us are A-type personalities. 
Um, I would say that some folks come in and they have law degrees and they're accountants or they were Navy SEALs or um, they were teachers. It doesn't matter. Uh, we're looking for, because we're, we investigate so many different crimes, we need that diverse of a background. So I would say that I w I'm more, I rely more on my street smarts and the type of place I grew up than anything. So uh, tell us about the Citizens Academy. What is the, what is the experience like? What do, you, uh, what do you learn? Sure, uh, Citizens Academy is a 10-week program that is held in the fall um, every Thursday night for 10 weeks for three hours. And that gives folks the opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see how the FBI does what it does. And you get presented with meeting everybody that uh, is involved, like myself and my, and my um, uh, peers, all the other assistant special agents in charge, and our, our boss, our special agent in charge. And you get case presentations, you get tours, you get to go to the far, firearms range and shoot a variety of weapons, but you kind of get an idea of how we build these cases and what goes into making the successes. And all the folks that we work with, all the local partners we work with, all the other federal partners we work with. In order to get selected for the Citizens Academy, you have to be vouched for or recommended by someone who already went to the Citizens Academy, uh, maybe someone, uh, an FBI agent that works with us today, maybe a chief of police, something to that effect. So it is um, not difficult, but we want a, a broad sect of the community um, because we want you guys to go out and be ambassadors for the FBI. So what I like to say is, is that please judge the FBI by the folks that you meet here in Dallas and not by anybody else or what anybody else says. I think that's important because you can kind of get lost in a little bit of the noise that you hear within the media and nationally. Just think about the folks that are out there getting after it every single day and uh, working for you and the community to keep you safe because we live in this community as well. We pay taxes, our kids go to school here, so we're really helping ourselves out as well as helping uh, the community out. And that's incredibly important. Now you mentioned local partners. I mean, you do rely on not only local law enforcement, but other agencies and people and sure. organizations to help you do what you do. Yes, uh, you know, uh, just a few years ago, the unfortunate tragedy of, uh, uh, that Richardson had with the uh, Sharon Matthews. Uh, it was my folks that came out here, uh, not too far from here, and worked the investigation. Um, to help Chief Spivey and the locals. So yes, we cannot, we cannot be successful without the partnerships that we build. And not just law enforcement partnerships and all the, the police departments, but actually the community. I like to say, you know, and, and you know, the percentage varies, you know, I like to say 80% of our success is based on the information we receive from the community. And I say the remaining 20% is magic. But at the end of the day, we can't be successful without the support from the community, providing us information, taking the risk to report a crime, and then having the fortitude to stand up with us if they ever have to testify in trial. So there have been so many uh, detective and crime-solving movies and TV, even just in the past decades, uh, CSI, Hill Street Blues, Sherlock, Criminal Minds, uh, Murder, She Wrote, uh, uh, Law and Order, and, and how, how many of us remember one of the early ones? I remember Barney Miller. Um, what, what, and these are crime solvers. These are not 
superheroes, because then we have Batman and Green Hornet, and they're crime solvers too. Mm -hmm. um, what is, why do you think people are so fascinated with crime solving and crime and the process of solving crimes? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm glad that they are. Um, we don't solve everything in an hour with four commercial breaks, although I've had <laughs> cases like that. Uh, but I think it's just a fascinating, I mean, you know, um, we, we get so many applicants to be FBI agents or to join the program uh, in some capacity, and, um, and that's a good thing. I mean, the more folks we have attempting to get in the FBI, the better for us. And if they want to be part of something bigger and serve, you know, um, please come out and try to join. But I don't know what the fascination is, but I can assure you that um, what we do is incredibly interesting. We may not make a ton of money because we're poor government employees, but that's not why we join. Why we join because we are raised a certain way with a certain moral and ethic code, and our responsibility is to police the community at a national level, and um, and just it's more of an injustice thing. You so, do you think we we get to live vicariously through these people in the shows? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I Feel mean, I live vicariously through those same characters, you know, that I mentioned earlier. So um, I watched all, you know, all those shows. Some of the older ones you talked about, not necessarily the new ones. Once you're in the business, it's hard. It's hard to watch a show about your business. But before you join it, it's like you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and that's kind of what drew me to it. I, I think it was more the glory and, and the, the cool factor, like, wow, I can actually really do this. And uh, I still, to, my, to this day, after 23 years of being in the FBI, sometimes I just can't fathom that this kid from the streets of Scranton actually made it to be an FBI agent. But it was the streets of Scranton that helps you be an FBI agent. Yes, yes. In, in, ter in terms of your, what you bring, and you, you mentioned street smarts. Yes. So that is, that is the one aspect that you bring to this that's different. Yes. Than the teacher or the accountant or... Yeah, street smarts. My mom would probably call it street dumb, <laughs> uh, you know, or foolish, but yes. So, uh, so what is the difference between an agent or a special agent? And so how, what are, how do the titles and hierarchy of the agency work? Okay. okay, so I'm a special agent, which is basically, you know, to, in order to become and apply to be a special agent, you have to have three years' work experience. You've got to apply. You know you're competing with everybody else in the country wanting to be an agent. We get, you know, ten to 15,000 applicants a year. Um, you have to have a four-year degree, and you have to have tangible work experience that we can use. Um, and you join, you become a special agent after you go through Quantico. While you're at Quantico, you're also teamed up nowadays with uh, intelligence analysts. These are folks that may necessarily don't want to be a special agent, but still want to participate. And they're incredibly smart. And we have intelligence analysts that have PhDs. And they come on, and they are the brains behind the operation. They drive, they drive the operations. They collect the intelligence point us in the right direction, and it's a great investigative team. We have other support elements that also are part of the investigative team that do research. You know, we have linguists. Um, we have uh, other technical capability folks that may or may not have wanted to been an agent or could have been an agent, but they're all part of the FBI. So we, it, it, you know, I want to say it takes a village to make a case, but it's a huge team effort in order to put subjects in jail because, as you know, with technology, it's a lot, the, the bad guys are a lot more sophisticated. 
and we always have to be right in order to catch them. And it might take time, and we like to be able to prevent acts of terrorism, of crime, as best we can based on the intelligence we collect, but there's no one better in the world that can take care of it after it's happened. And I think that's kind of our, our global reputation. So if these analysts are bringing research and brains, what is it that the special agent brings that's, that's different, that adds to? Is it instinct? Is it... So it, it's training experience. We're the ones out there uh, collecting information from, inf uh, from informants and the community. We're, uh, we're running operations. We're, we're putting together scenarios to capture the bad guys. We take a lot more risks. You know, and um, it's, like I said, I it was, it's a team effort, but at the end of the day, it's the agent that testifies in court, it's the agent that works in the United States Attorney's Office to, pros to prosecute these cases, and we bring all the institutional knowledge associated with it. We're the ones charged with carrying a gun and badge and having the, 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 legal, um, the legal backing to do what we, we do. I will not ask if you have a gun on you right now. Next question. <laughs> so, so when you're first handed a case, uh, what are the first things you do? How do you, how do you approach a case? So regardless of what the case is or what the complaint is or what the violation is, uh, what you do is you collect as much information as possible. And a lot of times that is uh, re-interviewing re the complainant who came in with it right, and starting to find out, starting to peel back the layers of the onion to collect information. So I might send out subpoenas to get bank records so I can start following the money. Because you know most of this, most of the crimes that we're involved, involved in investigating are all financially motivated. I mean, maybe not so much the terrorism uh, side of it or anybody who has got some sort of, um, you know, political or social agenda, but for the most part, it's financially motivated. Uh, send out subpoenas, collect information, do a bunch of interviews, do surveillance, um, analyze that information. We might do search warrants and collect information off of computers or uh, email accounts. We might go up on a, what we call a, a, title, th a title III, which is a legal court-ordered wiretap, you know, to collect information. And we want to know as much as we possibly can and as much as of the scheme ahead of time. Once we gather all our information, gather all our intelligence, we meet with the United States Attorney's Office. The United States Attorney's Office, for those who don't know, are the ones who prosecute federal crimes. You might hear about the District Attorney's Office, like Law and Order. Well, that's the, the state and local police departments take their cases to a DA's office. We take them to the United States Attorney's Office. So that's a difference. What would the difference, what, what would two cases, what would a, one, a case that each would prosecute? Be, how are they different? So the district attorney's office will prosecute cases that do not have a federal nexus. We take the cases that have a federal nexus, interstate nexus, you know, larger volume. Um, I'll give you an example. So if there is someone is, is murdered and it's just a straight out murder, district attorney's office is going to take that, take that as a robbery. A case that we would get involved in, let's say, let's take it that it's a robbery. Well, this robbery crew that came to Dallas, um, came from California, so across across state lines. And then they came and they robbed the place violently, um, a business that does interstate commerce. So it affects interstate commerce. So you can draw the conclusion that we handle anything that has interstate commerce, interstate nexus. Um, the locals handle stuff that's more of a local matter. You know, aggravated assaults, just murders, robberies, you know, thefts, that kind of thing. So even if you're not first on the scene, 
you are recreating the case. You're still starting from the start and yeah. gathering all the information or or <clears throat> confirming the information. Sure, I'll give you an example. If, if, a, if a bank gets robbed tomorrow, the first person that's gonna be on the scene is gonna be a local police officer. And they're gonna get there and they have their procedures to secure the scene, uh, make sure everybody's okay, uh, preserve evidence. We're gonna get a call as well and we're gonna respond. We, we'll probably get there a little bit later because we're not that patrol unit in uniform that's uh, uh, able to respond quickly. But we'll get there because we were involved in investigating bank robberies because uh, banks are FDIC insured, they do commerce interstate, and you know there's a, a lot of times it's not a, a one-time robbery. Usually bank robbers, usually serial robbers, and they've got a pattern, they've done it before. So there's a, an opportunity where the locals are on the scene first and we work in conjunction with them, and then we'll go ahead and take that case to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And in the federal system, you do if you get 20 years, you're doing 20 years. In the state system, if you get 20 years, you might do less, and it's a little bit different. <clears throat> so our time is pretty uh, um, accurate when it comes to your sentencing. And, you know, there are times when the state uh, can put more resources and more, um, more time on a subject and, uh, instead of the feds. It all depends on how, what the violation is and the circumstances surrounding it. Last month with our guests, part of the conversation uh, dealt with a book called Bluebird, Bluebird that we that uh, was all a part of the program, Richardson Reads One Book. And uh, there it was about this East Texas, a double murder in an East Texas town and uh, explored a lot of the mystique and the foibles of small town local law enforcement. Um, but it also, I mean, there were weaknesses, but there were also strengths of knowing the people and knowing the local players. Um, have you had any experiences where local law enforcement has either helped or hindered you? Well, I won't talk about the hindering part, but if you, if you were around for the Kaufman murders, that's a perfect example where we worked with the locals to solve the, the, the Kaufman killing. So that was, you know, small town. But yeah, they do have, they do have more of an optic about their community and they can get, kind of get a gauge of who knows who and who's going to come forward to help out. But let's just say that they, they're having a difficult time solving it. Well, they can lean on us and we can bring in our behavioral analysis unit to do an analysis who, who may, who the subject may be. We can provide all sorts of technical capabilities and phone analysis capabilities that they may not have because they're a small department and less resources. Well, we can bring, what we can bring is resources. We can bring an army and we can give that chief and that department um, help solving that crime. Or you may just be able to bring objectivity. Sure. It may be that they're too close to the people involved to And our behavioral, our behavioral analysis unit will help with that. So uh, what do you do when there are, in a case where there are no suspects or leads or it's a cold case? How do you, how do you break through a, a case that doesn't seem to be going anywhere? So there are, some, there are some FBI divisions in the country that have cold case squads. Because very large city cold case squads, you know the New Yorks and the Washington D.C.s and uh, in in L.A. as well. Um, it takes a lot of patience and tenacity, um, re-examination of the evidence that was collected. You know, more interviews, 
uh, a lot of times with the old cold cases, what they didn't have back in the day was uh, the capability to do DNA. So we'll go ahead and try to freshen up DNA and freshen up evidence. And um, like the, you know, any sort of like um, <clears throat> the, the more popular Green River Killers or uh, BTK in Kansas, those kind of cases where we will continue to, to just press forward. It may not a, be a priority um, for some field offices, but we still assign an agent to lend the locals a hand to reevaluate evidence, do interviews until we can and solve the case. Do you have any personal things you do to open your mind to inspiration, music, exercise, food? What, what do you do to, to find that idea or inspiration? Uh, that's a great question. I got to be careful answering it. What do other agents no, no, so, like okay. you? So for ex oh, if you're hypothetically asking. <laughs> hypothetically, what, so, what could an agent sure. do if he was blocked on a case? Uh, yeah. So uh, for some of the folks in the audience who know me, it's kind of, uh, you know, rely on my, cover my insecurities with my sense of humor maybe. Uh, no, work out, um, spend time with the family, kind of escape a little bit. I, 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 um, I take my job very personal and I'm passionate about what I do, and I try to craft and design strategies and scenarios for success to make my cases efficient and quick as opposed to long-term. And I try to maintain the focus of the folks who work for me the same way. My biggest responsibility is making sure that the person is prepared to take my job when I leave and that they're comfortable knowing that no matter what problem comes through the door, I prepare them to have that answer. So when the young agent is coming through what he thinks the sky's falling, I prepare my direct reports to make sure they can handle that it's not really falling and they have solutions to the problems. And that's based on experience. And that's, that's kind of what I do. And I spend a lot of time actually doing that and thinking about that off duty. So when we were talking earlier, you said you were very firm about not bringing work home and separating work from personal life. If you're, if you're thinking about work when you're not at work, how do, you, how do you create that line between work and not work? Well, for, a long, for the longest time, I didn't take work home with me because I didn't feel it was, it was a place. And when my kids were young, and now the kids are older. I've got two in college and one uh, in high school. And, and a little over two years ago, my wife joined the FBI as a support employee you know, to get back into the workforce. So now I'm a little more free in talking because now she understands the acronyms and she understands what I go through because she sees it firsthand. So she's a little bit more um, understanding, just a little bit. Uh, she's she still, uh, you know, um, is still in charge. Uh, uh, and, um, and I start to explain things a little bit more to my sons now that they're older because I've got to put the P in their minds that maybe they might want to follow my footsteps. No pressure, you know, but maybe if they're interested in doing it, then, you know, you know and some of, the, some of the folks in a test, yeah, so occasionally my face shows up on the evening news or there's an article in the paper or they're watching TV and they see someone, whether it's a real TV show or the news in an FBI jacket, well, they kind of know that's dad, you know, or, or someone that works with dad. So, you know, I don't know if that helps them at school with the cool factor or not, um, but um, 
I do the best I can to be a good role model for them. Does it ever unsettle them that dad has a dangerous job? Well, there are times when I'm gone and I don't come back because I'm working a, a, a long hours on you know, a shooting suspect. Uh, if anybody can remember, just recently we had the guy come down to Dallas uh, armed and he shot up the federal courthouse. So um, we go out and we do what we need to do as far as incident command and helping the locals with that. And they kind of know I'm gone and they understand I'm down there but I make sure I get messages to them that I'm okay and not to worry. Um, when they were younger, they didn't know when I was on the FBI SWAT team and I would go out and do things. You know, they just saw Dad dressed all in black. You know, uh, when he came home, and they and then I they really didn't ask at that. They point. thought you were a ninja. Maybe, maybe, maybe they do. But um, I just hope it has some sort of positive effect on them. You know, um, and uh, you know, you you never you you can't force your kids to pick the role models. So. Um, so um, how are, I mean, in your, in your bio, it talks about some of the crimes you prosecute, and there are a lot of what we would call white-collar crimes. What is it that makes a crime white-collar versus blue-collar? Okay, so for... If, uh, if blue is the right, still the right color. <laughs> no, that, that's okay, I understand. So in my, in my responsibility at work, I am the white-collar ASAC. I am responsible for all complex financial crimes investigations, your health care fraud investigations, all your public corruption investigations, all your cyber investigations, cyber intrusion, financially motivated cyber investigations. And then I have a squad of uh, forensic accountants that help with, that, uh, with the white-collar program. Um, what makes it white collar is usually the the folks committing the crime, the type of crime, and the dollar figures. So if you read anything about any trials that had to do with doctors, that was my folks. Any public corruption successes, that was my folks. You know, um, and any sort of oil and gas fraud, embezzlements, elderly fraud, business email compromises, those are my folks. And when I say they're my folks, I really, it, you know, they all they work for me. But I got to tell you something. One thing I'm blessed with is I've got some absolutely outstanding agents that work here in Dallas that I'm lucky to say I work with, and they don't work for me. Incredibly intelligent. I don't know how they do it, um, but they're amazing. And so they will go through and they will find every single dollar. So if there is a if you read something about, well, it's a $40 million fraud took place at XYZ company, we accounted for all $40 million. And, and it is an incredible amount of attention to detail and record keeping and evidence collection in that regard. So opposite of white collar, we have violent crime, which is your, which is your uh, gangs and drugs and organized crime. You know, you have your terrorism, your national security cases, which are all your terrorism, domestic and international terrorism, your foreign counterintelligence. You know, so if you hear anything about Russia and China, that's going to be our counterintelligence folks. So I've got, uh, I'll be heavy on the accountants, agents on, on, on my branch, and maybe some of the attorneys. So, yeah. And so tell us, how, how big is this team of your folks? How many people are part of this effort here locally? So uh, the Dallas division covers all of North Texas. So that's Texarkana, Alta, Amarillo, Lubbock, down to San Angelo, Wichita Falls, Abilene, Tyler, Lufkin, and then the Metroplex, which is Frisco, Fort Worth, and here. So we have a total of 600 employees. Um, about a quarter of that are agents. I have about 100 folks underneath me between supervisors, agents, 
uh, and support professionals. And then how, uh, how far is it between you and the FBI director? <laughs> yeah, so my boss, uh, the special agent in charge, um, works directly for the deputy director. Um, and the deputy director, which is one below the FBI director, is, is the boss for all the special agent in charge throughout the country. We have 56 field offices. So, so what type of mind does it take to commit these sorts of crimes? Uh, I would say... Uh, Let's keep it on the white-collar crimes, sure. the, the ones you specialize in. Great question. So uh, very creative minds, very committed minds. Um, I have had the luxury of having put people in prison that had law degrees, were medical doctors, went to the Wharton School of Business, Harvard, worked on Wall Street. So you would think that with all that pedigree and all that intelligence that they wouldn't, and all that money, that they wouldn't continue to commit crimes, but they do. So it's more of a greed thing, if anything. That's the, that's the main uh, line you'll see is, is greed. Um, there's, a, there's a thrill of it, and you'll see that kind of like in the movie uh, that you guys are going to see tonight. Catch me if you can. I think Frank Abnagale had more of, a, obviously, you know, a need for money. You know, you'll see the relationship with his dad. But I think at one point it was kind of a little bit of a challenge to pull off some of the things he pulled off, you know, um, and doing like that a little bit of like, uh, in his word, you know, undercover, playing the air, airline pilot and all that other stuff he does in the movie. So I would say that it's greed and just financially motivated. So uh, in, in addition to the, I guess, the real crime dramas that we talked about earlier, there's a couple of popular ones uh, out today. I'm thinking of a, a show called Mindhunter, where the FBI behavioral agents are interviewing serial killers to figure out how they work. And there's a new one called uh, Prodigal Son, where the detective is actually the son of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. And so has is it nature or nurture that he has this talent to solve crimes? Um, do you need to get into the mind of the criminal in order to find out how the criminal is, has thought through this crime, or is it better to look from the other side and, and evaluate it with some distance? Well, when it comes to the show Mindhunter um, and the books that were written, I, I don't have any experience doing that because those are like your cold cases and trying to find out a serial killer and try to stay one step ahead and collect the evidence. You do a lot of interviews, you know. Um, so I don't, I don't have experience with that. I think that the amount of, and you know, the amount of evidence that we collect is so overwhelming that, in a way, you by default end up knowing a lot about your subjects that you're dealing with, and um, not necessarily get in their mind. But you, what we need to do is prove intent, and um, and that's evidence collection. You know, reading emails, text messages, understanding how the conspiracy worked. Maybe we got an undercover into that uh, organization and they helped us, you know, with um, understanding what the bad guys were like. You know, so I think that helps prove intent. But uh, there's no magic to it. It's just experience. So you might not be able to have an agent that's in on a few years understand the wherewithal of everything that a bad guy does, but more of a senior agent will kind of get that pretty quick. So we kind of stay focused, though, on the evidence collection, what was what the crime that was committed, and what we need to and what we need to prosecute it. Have you ever had a, a case where the criminal uh, just you just couldn't get, or 
could get too well or boggled your mind as to how this was, how they were able to get away with this or do even just uh, think of this, do this? One thing I learned early on in this job is you never put anything past anybody. And so you're wondering why, you know, a medical doctor who's really wealthy has to commit fraud in order to get that much more rich. You know, how many more cars do you need or, you know, um, you know, uh, manipulating a stock, you know, uh, for securities fraud. You know, I, I don't put anything past anybody. I don't spend much time on the violent crime side in my career. You know, the, I've been exposed to it and I did work, um, you know, undercover for a long time, but it, I don't get involved in that. I kind of more, you know, my colleagues would tell me if I use the word cerebral, they'll, they'll get on me, but, you know, uh, there's a sophistication to uh, the stuff that we do in my branch, but I will tell you that the gangs and the organized crime and the drug dealers are a lot more sophisticated than you remember. They're using end-to-end -end encryption applications you know, they know about how difficult it is for us to break encryption. They're exchanging cryptocurrency and setting up crypto wallets. So it is getting a lot more sophisticated. And that's one of the challenges the FBI has, is as, as that technology evolves, so do we need to. So we spend more time continual training, making sure we bring in the young, the, the young agents who may be a better generation to understand certain things than the older agents. Um, so that becomes a challenge because they, all they do is sit home and, and think about fraud. And you have to follow their WhatsApp or their Snapchat or whatever their... Yeah, uh, yes, social media can do and does do in a lot of bad guys, you know, because they can't not brag about something or take a photo of something. Um, you know, you could see a person who is a convicted felon and he's not allowed to own a firearm has a picture of himself holding a gun on Facebook. I mean, those are kind of easy cases, you know? Uh, but there are some that are incredibly sophisticated. So certainly with the CSIs and the law and orders, there's a, and dealing with the more violent crimes, there's a wear and tear, I think an emotional drain that the agents and the, the off, off detectives go through. Is there a wear and tear for cyber and white collar? Crime. I mean, there, there's, there are victims, but you know, you asked that question uh, a little bit earlier. Each agent handles their stress and their off-duty time differently. So, what motivates someone to escape is different for all the different agents. Um, so, I would say that's part of it. But we do work long hours, but it's okay. We like doing that. If I have to work a kidnapping case and run the operation, sometimes I could be going for 36 hours straight only because I feel like I can't leave and I don't want to leave it to somebody else until someone taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, you need to go because you may not be thinking, thinking clearly, you know? And that's a good thing about my, rep if I leave tomorrow and retire from the bureau tomorrow, it's kind of like that adage, well, the next one up, like, you know, Coach Belichick uh, may say, well, there's a replacement for you waiting for their opportunity. And, uh, and that's a good feeling knowing that I'm turning the bureau over to someone else and it's going to be in good hands. They might do have a different style than me, but I know at the end of the day, I'm hoping that person makes it that much better than what I than how I made it. Now, the uh, the movie tonight is uh, about the notorious or renowned, depending on your interpretation, uh, con man, criminal Frank Frank Abengale. You you mentioned you've met him a couple of times. Tell us about that. 
so when I was first assigned to Oklahoma City as a brand new agent, um, I met uh, Frank. Came to our office and spoke to us because he he goes on the speech uh, circuit and kind of gave us an idea of how he got involved in it, why he got involved in it. You know, the fun of it, the challenge, the excitement, and you know some of the manipulations. It was much easier to well, I shouldn't say much easier, but you know, to manipulate checks and pass bad checks back then, you know, with minimal forms of ID was relatively easy. But if you're a cyber guy and you're an intrusion guy, they would tell you, well, it's much easier to do fraud now. Um, so there's a lot more Frank Abnegales out there currently. But he's dead after his time, he's dedicated a lot of time and effort uh, personal to help the FBI uh, back then when he, when he was first on the speech circuit and I also saw him speak at FBI headquarters and I think he, I think I don't know if he still resides in Tulsa I and mean, that's why we're able to talk to him but if I'm not mistaken I think Frank's son is an FBI agent yes Charleston South Carolina yeah so you mentioned you've mentioned your team and uh, empowering your team to be the next person up how much of the work you do is supervising a team and helping them do what they do versus the actual figuring it out? That's probably 90% of the time. So I go into an office and sit behind a computer and manage problems and manage risk. A lot of times when my phone rings, it's never good. And when someone comes in the office, it's never to say something fabulous. You know, there are some times when there are successes, they let me know, but I'm ready to mitigate risk at a moment's notice, you know. Um, sure, I carry a gun and badge, and I'm ready to jump, and, you know, I get involved in large-scale arrests and whatnot, but, you know, I like to joke and say that I think they converted my gun to a whistle <laughs> and uh, if I need it. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a, you know, young man's game, as they say. But uh, I spend a lot of time making sure the agents are ready, you know, and based on my experience, and I have a very diverse uh, experience from a different, different field offices, and um, what I try to do is I impart those ideas and those strategies and those scenarios on agents because they're tried and true and I've done them before. So I don't come up with ideas just out of the thin blue. It's, and I was just telling this to someone the other day, you know, Costanzi's not creating ideas for the sake of creating ideas hoping they may work. I've done it. I supervise other people who've done it. I stood next to the guy who did it. So there are kind of things that have worked in the places I've uh, investigated. So what does a typical day in your life, in your work day, like now versus 23 years ago? When I first started, I would always kind of think about what do I need to do? What am I missing? What do I need to do? What angle do I need to take to, to make my case? Constantly thinking about that. And as I gradually got a little bit better at it, then um, I wasn't so tunnel vision focused. I started broadening it out a little bit and trying to figure out who else was involved and what schemes I can get. In, uh, trying to be able, trying to think like he would think, and that actually helped me because I spent about 12 years working undercover. So I would portray uh, a bad guy in a lot of different scenarios, and I think that probably more than anything gave me uh, the, the the experience that maybe some other agents don't have the luxury of being able to have. So whether it's working at a murder for hire, being in an organized crime family, pretending to be an organized crime person, paying bribes to politicians, meeting 
folks who have, may have killed someone, you know, they're, uh, you know, working against dirty cops. I've kind of done the gamut, uh, working against spies. So I've kind of worked the gamut when it came to undercover work. But my undercover work pales in comparison to some of the folks we've had who've done such greater things. So I'm on average with that. I would and never say I'm great. What does the rest of your career look like? Uh, well, well I'll, I'll tell you guys if you're interested. So I got to Oklahoma City um, uh, about a year after the bombing when I when, uh, um, left Quantico. So um, I was there to help with trial preparation and work domestic terrorism and uh, did that for a couple of years. And then I switched in and was there through the trial prep, collecting evidence and whatnot. Then I switched to organized crime and drugs, was able to go to the undercover school, did some undercover work in some militia groups back then. Then I went off to headquarters um, and I went into the undercover unit where I was overseeing all different types of undercover cases. So I got exposure to a lot of different scenarios that some with a lot of different violations. So it gave me, you know, you know, a library of ideas. I ran a couple undercover schools. Um, you know, you've seen the movie Donnie Brasco with Joe Pistone. Well, he trained me in my undercover school. Um, from headquarters, I went on, I ran the office in Atlantic City, New Jersey for seven years. Um, and that was a white collar public corruption squad. I did a lot of undercover work in that assignment. Um, after uh, the seven years, I went back and did a special undercover assignment where I was doing public corruption cases for a few years. Then I got picked up to be on the FBI's inspection team where I went around the country inspecting other field offices. So you, there's another you know, much higher optic on how other offices do things. So I was able to pick up on best practices and what not to do, what to do, what to incorporate. I like to say that you know, I have a, um, a quote on my leadership board in my office that says, don't reinvent the wheel, steal it because someone else is doing it better, and you don't need to waste time, and, it, and you have to you know, eat humble pie to be able to admit that, yeah, it looks like this division and this agent is doing it better than me, so therefore let me adopt it. And then after the inspection year, um, I got picked up to be the ASAC here in uh, Dallas. Uh, about four and a half years ago, I came here. I loved every single minute of it. I live up in Frisco. I only miss the beach occasionally in Jersey, but this is such a better quality of life here in, in uh, Big D, and it's got more opportunities for me and my family and my kids, and I think that's probably the best thing. I've always wanted to get to Dallas. I will tell you that you're probably going to think, well, Scranton, Pennsylvania, how did you become a Cowboy fan? Well, I'll answer that for you. Back in the day, if you remember, America's team was always on television. You may not know that here, but back in Pennsylvania, the odd game or the late game was always the Cowboys and the star and Roger Staubach and Tony Dorsett. And I just, that was it. It was over for me back then. I was like a little patriot because my dad was a Marine. So I was, I was like, America's team. That's all, it, all <laughs> I need, right? And the star was cool. Roger Staubach, you know, Air Force or uh, Naval Academy, you know, Vietnam vet. And uh, so I became a Cowboy fan. And I knew that I wanted to be back here and just living in amongst, and I gotta tell you, this, the, here's one of the, there's a lot of great things about this area, and, but the, what makes it so fantastic is you guys. The people here are outstanding. The law enforcement community is outstanding. The community is outstanding. They're just great people. Not saying there weren't great people in New Jersey or I grew up in Pennsylvania, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that pound for pound of all the places I've lived overseas in the United States, this is without a doubt the best place to live. What a great story. 
So uh, we know that special agents must make split-second decisions. So we will end quite conveniently as we end all of our airtimes with our top 10 lightning round questions. Just give me the first answer that comes to mind. Oh, okay. All right. And keep it G-rated. Yep, okay. it's absolutely G-rated. Number one, pie or cake? Pie. Number two, Eiffel Tower or Empire State? Empire State. Number three, the greatest detective of all time? The greatest detective of all time. Lightning round, answer that. Even though, he's a, even though he was a, uh, a private investigator, I'm gonna say uh, uh, um, Magnum PI, Thomas Magnum. All right. Number four, Elvis or the Beatles? Ooh, I would have to say the Beatles. Number five, Jesse James or Al Capone? I'm gonna go with the Paisan, Al Capone. Number six, spaghetti or cheeseburger? Spaghetti. Number seven, electric chair or firing squad? Great question. I'm gonna go old school firing squad. Number eight, craft beer or craft cocktail? Cocktail. Number nine, something that makes you laugh. Uh, something that makes me laugh. Situations. Number 10, the greatest unsolved crime or mystery of all time. Oh, it's probably gonna have to be, um, it's probably gonna have to be, uh, uh, what's it, uh, the guy that jumped out of the plane and stole the money, um, D.B. Cooper, right? Yeah, D.B. Cooper. All right. Oh, and well, no, I, I take that back. I take that back. Let me go back, have that erased. So <laughs> it's gonna be, uh, and, and so I'm not putting a plug in, so it's probably gonna be what really happened to uh, Jimmy Hoffa. Ah. So when you watch the movie that's coming up, it's called The Irishman. And it's based on the book, I Heard You Paint Houses. And it's coming out, and the mob guy in that's portrayed in there, Russell Buffalino, was the, was the organized crime boss in the area where I grew up. So, um, yeah. So thank you so much for giving us a perspective into your work. Please let me welcome and thank Michael Costanzi. And we'll turn it thank back you, over to you. Kitty. Thank you. I hate to take it away from you, and I wish we had another hour. Um, Thank you so much for your time and uh, your sharing of your expertise and your uh, dedication to what you do to uh, protect our country, which I think is uh, really important and often is a, an aspect that we don't think a whole lot about because they seem to take care of it so well. Anyway, thank you very much for that. And just a quick reminder, um, the next airtime see we do progress, is November the 12th and it's going to be with Kevin Sprague and Kyle Simmons of Noble Coyote Coffee Roasters. And the movie will be Diner. So we'll see you on November the 12th. Thank you and enjoy the movie. Thanks. Thank you.